Hey, uh, I love this time of year. Can anybody relate to me on that? The days are longer. It's been nice outside, especially the last few days of this week. I love this time of year. Some of you are on a vacation right now, and you're probably joining us online, and you're not in the room, but you're somewhere that we want to be, so the rest of us here in this space are jealous of you right now. I uh, was thinking about family vacations, tis the season, I was thinking about traveling and uh, earlier in the week because uh, Don looked at me on the 4th of July on Monday, this is before we watched stuff blow up in the sky, that afternoon she looked at me and she said, hey, do you want to go to REI? I've never loved that woman more in my life. Then that very moment, I said, of course, I want to go to REI and look around. We can dream about future adventures and gear up for a couple things that are coming up. And it reminded me that about four years, maybe five years ago, our family was on a trip that day. Fourth of July, we were in Seattle. Have you ever seen the fireworks in Seattle? I think Microsoft and Amazon kind of underwrite that. It's an amazing show. Earlier in that day, though, we were at REI at the... um, kind of the mothership, the first REI, walking around. That's an amazing space. I can tell it was the 4th of July by this picture because I'm all decked out for America, right? <laughs> that was fun. We, on that same trip, we left Washington, uh, Seattle, and we drove down the coastline. To, have you ever been to Portland, Oregon, this quirky little city on the coast, Portland, Oregon? How many of you have been to Portland? Did you know that Portland has kind of a claim to fame? They've got the the world's smallest of something, and they've got the world's largest of something. On that trip, I was like walking around downtown Portland, and I was like, I want to check out the smallest thing. It happens to be a city park. This is the world's smallest, according to Portland, Oregon, city park. We snapped the selfie, the photo in the city park. It's like in the middle of this intersection. There was a sign I saw in a picture somewhere else that uh, it had a sign saying, please keep our park clean. (laughs) I think people have been like throwing their cigarette butts or something in there as they walk past. But it's on record as the smallest city park, I think, in the world. They also have the world's largest thing. How many of you are book nerds? Can you relate to this? Powell's Books, if you've never been there, if you're in Portland, Oregon, do yourself a favor and walk around. Here's a picture of me standing in one of the spaces inside there. It, it, it's a huge bookstore. Years ago, CNN rated it as one of the coolest bookstores in the world, as if there is such a thing. It occupies a full city block. It contains over 68,000 square feet. Get this, that's 1.6 acres of retail floor space. Huge bookstore. How many of you, what's the last time you've been in a bookstore? Probably not recently. Amazon, uh, online booksellers have kind of changed that a little bit in our culture. But if we were to walk into Powell's bookstore, if you and I were to walk into a bookstore together, I could walk you to a section. It would usually be in the self-help section. There would be a whole section of books that would be about finances and how to strike it rich, if you will. Now, usually investing your money in those kind of books, well, they're going to make the author rich, maybe not so much you if you're reading it. But there are two questions you should ask about these kind of books. First of all, is it reliable? Can I trust what the author is saying? Second, 
you should ask, is it, is it useful for me? The problem with investment books is they usually begin with this assumption that you have this big old chunk of money to invest to begin with. So for me, that's not necessarily going to be super helpful for me. But if you could show me a book that you could guarantee me a return on investment, it's proven to be reliable, it's proven to be useful, I would buy it and I would read it and I bet you would too. The fact is, we own a book, most of us. We own a book that tells us how to invest our lives for maximum profit. And this book has been proven to be totally reliable. No one has ever uh, followed its life investment strategy and been disappointed. It's available to every human being right where they're at. And yet, strangely, oftentimes, it's neglected sitting on our shelf somewhere all the while we're watching television or we're mindlessly scrolling social media. I'm talking, of course, about your Bible. It's a book that is totally reliable, and it's useful for every person in every country around the globe, no matter what their situation is in life. It's never let anybody down. Millions down through the centuries have followed its life investment strategy and found it to be completely satisfying and helpful. Most of us Actually, I bet most of us in this room own several copies of it, probably in different translations. But the Bible's not a good luck charm. Having a copy of it somewhere on a shelf in your house will not make it rub off on your family. Like any book, the Bible will profit you only if you read it, you study it, and you apply it to your life. Today, I want to convince you of this. Actually, my secondary goal today is to convince you that you need the Bible. Why? Because it's totally reliable, and it's useful for your life. That'd be my secondary goal. My primary goal, actually, would be to challenge you to dust it off, to crack the spine, to dive into it. Oh, today, even. This week, our primary problem is not access to the Bible. Our primary problem is usage. I've actually got the Bible in about every translation right here on this device. I've got thousands of documents, thousands of helps and resources, commentaries and study tools to help me understand, to help me study the Bible right here on this device. My problem is not access. I've got a usage problem, and I wonder if you do as well. Okay, welcome to week three of our 316 series. We're marching through these different 316s through the summer that we find in our Bible, and what we've done is we've married each one of them, kind of matched it up with one of the core values of our church. We've done this for a couple of reasons. Part of the goal of this series is to recognize that these core values of our church, they're timeless. They're similar to the core values that the church has embraced for a couple of millennia now. We're aiming through these 316s at looking at the totality of Scripture because it is helpful. We've looked at this verse the last couple of weeks, but I should remind you. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, The word of the Lord endures forever. Like newborn babies, the challenge is to crave pure spiritual milk. Why? So that you may grow up in your salvation. Part of the reason why we're doing this series is we want to aim at being more fully devoted followers of Christ, more maturity. 
Another reason we're doing this is because we're aiming at unity. Why? Because disunity is a mark of an immature believer. We'd be called to grow up. First Corinthians chapter 1 says this, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you will agree with one another in what you say and that there will be no divisions among you. You'd be perfectly united because some of the folks in Chloe's household have been ratting you out. There are divisions, Paul was saying in the church then, and if we're not careful, they sneak in today. So we need to look at what, what are our core values What are the main things that we can keep the main thing? Let me remind you of what these are here at Venture. The first week of this series, we talked about prayerful dependence on God. This is one of our core values. We pulled that from 1 Samuel 3.16. Last week, we talked about genuine hospitality. Mark 3.16. This week, we're looking at 2 Timothy 3.16, and the idea is biblical authority. Don't miss next week. Next week, my friend Danny Schaffner is going to be here preaching on outward-focused impact. He's going to tell stories from a church that he's served over the years and just how God can use us when we put our attention outward. Don't miss next week. And then the last week of this series, don't miss our own Jake Harp, our brand new discipleship pastor, is going to be preaching on continued spiritual growth. This is the core value that he's charged to champion here at our church. You don't want to miss that weekend as well. Biblical authority. That's what we're diving into today. A couple of words in that that jump out at me. These are very carefully chosen words, by the way. It's the word Bible. It's all about the Bible. Our mission here at Venture is to be real people, loving courageously, sharing generously, and speaking truthfully. Well, how do we know if we've hit the mark with these? Well, because we're real people that are studying a real book, God's Word, and it can speak to these truths, and it can inform us, it can challenge us, it can grow us up. The other word that I see here in this core value is the word authority. That is, uh, I just shared with you our mission statement. Our vision statement here at Venture is to venture home. We're calling everyone Venture Home, where we seek Jesus, first of all, and we see you. And by seeing you, we can seek Jesus even in that process. There's a cyclical process there. But seeking Jesus first, middle, and last. Why? Because he's the authority. And he speaks through the pages of Scripture to us, biblical Authority. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, pull your Bible out. Maybe you've got it on a smart device, a smartphone. Pull your Bible out right now and open it up to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. If you're following along in the Bible that's underneath the seat in front of you, by the way, if you're new around here or you're our guest this weekend, maybe you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one of these home with you when you leave. These are designed to be a tool. We should use them. I'm on page 1,199 of these Bibles. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. We're going to unpack that here in a minute. And it's useful. We're going to zero in on that word here in a minute for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16, that's a good one to memorize. Can I point out that word useful? Some of you cringed just a little bit when I was telling the story earlier about uh, the bookstore and the self-help section, and there's an idea for investment and get-rich-quick scheme. Some of you were thinking, oh, no, 
did my church go health and wealth gospel on me and I didn't know it? No. But this word, it's useful. All Scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable. You could translate that same word profitable. In other words, if you invest in time together with God here, it's going to pay dividends later. If you invest, there is a return on investment. The cool thing about Bible study, the cool thing about making this the authority in your life is that it's interest that's compound interest. Beginning of a recession or in a downturn or whatever we are right now, maybe I shouldn't be talking about such things, but do you know what compound interest is? We're all aiming for it as we think about our 401ks. It's this idea that you receive a return on your investment, and then that return gets lumped back into the principal, and then you you pay dividends on that in the future as well. Interest in the Bible, it compounds your whole life long. Are you living? Are you living under biblical authority? Okay, we're going to stretch this out because it's profitable. There's some principles for Bible study. I talked about this just a little bit last week. Let me just remind you of these. When we're studying the Bible, God's Word, we start, first of all, by identifying, hey, what kind of literature is this that I'm reading right now? We, we read Romans a little bit differently than we, we read maybe Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalm of Solomon, because they're different. These are poetic in nature. This is more didactic truth in nature. What type of literature is it that informs how we read and study Scripture? We study Scripture by Scripture. One of my favorite Bible study tools, it's called the Thompson Chain Reference Study Bible. If you, like me, enjoy rabbit trails, I'm going this way, and then all of a sudden I'm going to go off this way, that's a great study tool for you because you're reading a passage of Scripture, and it's like, hey, this is referencing another passage of Scripture over here, and then I'll turn over here and read that passage, and then it takes me over here, and that one takes me over here. You get the idea. But we study Scripture by Scripture. Why? Because the Bible is designed to be a unit. We study in its totality. Read for plain and obvious meaning. Sometimes the Bible is just very clear. This is what I'm calling you to do. We're going to end the sermon today in the book of James with that clear direction that James provides. What's the author's intention? There's an original audience. We're the secondary audience. When Moses, God whispered into Moses' ear in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were birthed, he had an intention for that. What was that? And we need to understand that as we read those texts. When Paul writes the book of Romans or 1 Corinthians or today, 1 and 2 Timothy, what was God speaking through him to that initial group of people? And we need to unpack that to understand that passage a little bit better. Study the language. We're going to do that a little bit today. Why? Because the Old Testament, the Hebrew, the New Testament, the Koine Greek, these are dead languages. Nobody speaks those anymore. So sometimes we just need to take a word and unpack it and study it just a little bit. We're going to do a bit of that today. And, of course, we study context. We don't get too bogged down. We don't grab a verse out of its context. These three sixteens, maybe you've noticed that not a single one of them has stood on its own. We don't just grab it and pull it out of context. We look at the larger context so we can apply it appropriately to our lives toward that end. Before we go any further, we're going to read the whole text before and after 2 Timothy 3.16. By the way, the context of this, 
the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to somebody that he's been mentoring in the faith, young Timothy. An older believer is writing to a younger, and he's encouraging him. He's challenging him. He's calling him to keep the main things the main thing, and there's huge application in his life. I would argue there's huge application in our lives as well. Could we invite God to simply do that for us today? Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? Let's invite God into this passage even before we read it aloud. God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to open it, to unpack it, to learn from it, to be challenged by it. God, we invite you to do just that. As we read, as we study, as we learn, in your name and Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to back up, I think, to verse 10. 2 Timothy 3, 10. You, Paul is writing. You, however, to Timothy, know all about my teaching. Timothy, you know me. You know what I'm about. You know my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, my persecutions, my sufferings. You know what kinds of things, even specifically, that happened to me in Antioch. You've heard these stories. You have firsthand accounts of what happened to me in Iconium and Lystra as well. You know that I endured persecutions. Yet, the Lord is the hero in my life, Timothy, just like he's the hero in your life. The Lord rescued me from all of these things. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you have learned it. I think of my Sunday school teachers when I was a kid. I think of what they invested into me. I know them. I know the trustworthy source. I think of my parents. I think of Bible studies that I get to do with some of you, and I trust you and what you read and how you seek to apply it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, here we are, verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, Timothy, let me give you the charge. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. This is your calling. Steward it carefully. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. We're going to glance at a couple of those here in a minute. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist. This is what you're called to be. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Amen. I want to outline the rest of the time that we have together. I want to challenge you that just like air, Food and water and shelter. Here's the deal. You need God's Word. You need the Bible. There's a reason why this is one of our core values as a church. You need it just like you need the air that you're breathing in right now. I want to share with you four words. 
on God's Word. You might even notice that these Bibles that are underneath the seats in front of you, it's labeled God's Word. So I want to look at four specific words, well, on the topic of God's Word. Here's the first one. If you're taking notes, you probably want to write these down. You need the Bible. Why? Because the Bible is whole life. It's whole life. I love this concept of whole life. I'm sure you've been following the news over the last several weeks, the abortion news and stories, the Supreme Court. I was actually on a Zoom call this past week with the director of Indiana's Right for Life and listening to kind of what they're facing, what they're going through right now. I love this concept of whole life. From womb to tomb. This is the ethos. This is the ethic, the Christian ethic that we've been living in for the last 2,000 years. We're all about whole life, from womb to tomb. This is why we Christians over the centuries have rolled up their sleeves and been on the front, the front spaces of hospitals, the front spaces of adoption and foster care, in the front spaces in the effort of geriatric care. Whole life, womb to tomb, we have a whole life ethic. Whole life, by the way, has a double meaning as we think about applying this concept of biblical authority. It's about all life, all of life, from womb to tomb. This is what the text said. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. We approach God's Word and we see the value of God's Word for all of life from womb to tomb. We value God's Word. This is why at Venture we put a high emphasis on biblical authority in kids' ministry. From womb. And then student ministry. This is not religion, just a bunch of rules, do this and don't do this and please don't do this, but rather, what does God's Word have to say about that? Let's anchor the truth where it belongs. Adults were the same way. You might not even know this if you've not been around Venture for long. We've got this whole thing happening right down the hallway during both hours on a Sunday morning. We have what we call ABF classes, where we roll up our sleeves and we seek to study God's Word deeper. And we do the same thing during the week in our small groups. We gather together in homes and we unpack God's Word. We seek to encourage one another and challenge one another. Live out 2 Timothy 3, 16. All of life. Senior saints. Babies. All life from womb to tomb. Okay, all of Scripture. By the way, all means all. What did the text say? All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful. We're looking at the totality of Scripture here, and we're going to see how this includes all of Scripture here in just a minute. But first, I want to share with you that for each of these words, I've got a question for you to wrestle with. For each of these words, I want to hit you with a question that only you can answer. I can't answer it for you. Here's our question for this. Whole life word. Do you invite God's Word to feed you? Are you inviting God's Word to literally give you what you need to sustain your life, all life, all Scripture? By the word, this is a carefully, by the way, this is a carefully chosen word, invite. Jesus is a gentleman. He will never force himself on you. This is not like the matrix where we just kind of plug this in and we download this thing. No, no, no. We go after it. We pour through Scripture. 
We invite God's Word to feed us. Are you doing that today? All right, four words on God's Word. Whole life is one of them. If you're taking notes, write this one down. You need the Bible because Scripture is inspired. It is. We just read it right there in the text. We could talk for hours about this idea, but I want to hit a couple of high points. Paul affirmed with elegant finality that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Do me a favor right now. Would you just take a deep breath in and then let that breath slowly out? I don't know about you, but... uh, I get to talking fast while I'm preaching. Even that breath I just took in right there, I can feel the oxygen hitting my synapses. I can feel that oxygen fueling my body. There's a word that we just read in the original language, the Greek word. There's a transliteration of that word. I'll put it on the screen right now. Theo Neustas. The P is silent. Theo, Theo means God. Neustas, this means breath. All scripture is God breathed. Actually, Neustas, if you were to study Greek, it reminds me a bit of another word you'll find in your New Testament. Two words strung together, agio, pneuma. Pneuma is spirit, holy spirit. Numa, Nustas. There's a link between the Spirit of God whispering God's word and then God breathing it out. All Scripture is breathed into by God. That would be a very literal translation of what we read there. When you speak, your word is you breathed, your breath conditioned by your mind, and then it pours out in speech. You breathe out your words. This belief that Scripture was breathed into by God, it expresses views of the first century of the Old Testament writings. The early church believed the same thing. As Peter declared in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, says, no prophecy of Scripture comes from somebody's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by by the will of man, but rather men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's God breathed. All Old Testament scriptures were God's breath, God's words. All scripture, all scripture is inspired. Well, surely Peter meant the Old Testament, right? Yes. But also, we see the link between the Old and the New Testament even inside the New Testament, both being viewed as Scripture. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, if you were to go just a few pages back to 1 Timothy out of 2 Timothy, you would see there that the word for Scripture, graphe, is used in 3.16. We just read it. It's also used here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. For Scripture, graphe says... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, literally quoting Deuteronomy 25. And, Scripture says, and the laborer deserves his wages. Who said that? Jesus said that. Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Quoting that, this is Scripture as well as the recognized Old Testament Scripture of the day. The Apostle Peter includes 
Paul's writings in the category of Scripture, that word graphe. This is a bonus 316. You get more than what you bargained for. This 316, I'm actually going to start in verse 15 of 2 Peter, 2 Peter 315. Bear in mind that it is our Lord's patience that means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, Peter is saying, Paul has said this as well. Listen to this. He writes the same way in all of his letters. Speaking in them of these matters, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Do you get this? So Peter is literally looking back and saying, hey, what Paul is saying, this is meant to be regarded as scripture. All of scripture is inspired. Here's the question. Do you invite God's Word to inspire you? It is inspired, but are you allowing it to do its complete work It actually inspiring you as well? Here's another word. I said four words on God's Word. You need the Bible because it's whole life, because it's inspired, but also because Scripture, it's useful. We just read it. Let me point out the details. The apostle used two pairs of words to flesh out Scripture's usefulness. It's useful. Remember, that also means profitable. It's profitable, useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting and training in righteousness. The first pair, teaching and rebuking, have to do with doctrine, right belief. Positively, all Scripture is profitable for teaching. Old Testament, New Testament alike, it's breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. The Bible, actually, it says it comes against myths. Remember, we read this just a bit ago, a little bit further. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. If they don't see the Bible as authority, biblical, live under biblical authority, They're tempted to turn aside to myths. Timothy, you keep them on the right track. What are some common modern-day myths? By the way, these are myths that the Bible comes against. Here's a myth. I just kind of grabbed this one this past week. This idea that, you know, bad things don't happen to good people. Really? Have you read the book of Job recently? That's a myth. We could unpack that. That's a whole sermon waiting to happen right there. But some people falsely buy into this myth, and their shallow faith gets destroyed when life happens. Here's another modern-day myth, that Christians are supposed to live separate. Yeah, the Bible calls you to be holy, but the Bible, Jesus, is also very clear. Listen, you're the salt and the light of the world. So lean in to the world. Don't live totally separate from the world, but rather be salt and light and impact your world for Jesus. What's another myth? You can do whatever you want in the privacy of your bedroom and it doesn't affect your life. Read the Bible. Sexual sin is very clearly defined as sin. It's a myth to think otherwise. How about this one? Cultural Christianity. This idea that, hey, listen, if I just talk about God occasionally, if I'm voting the right way, if I'm maybe living in a certain way that then God will accept me. That's not what the Bible is calling you for. It's calling you to be all in for Jesus. That's a myth. 
cultural Christianity. I could go on and on again. Together, the teaching and the rebuking produce the benefit of sound doctrine. The second pair, correction and training in righteousness, these have to do with conduct. It's not enough, enough to just think, I know what to believe. Rather, I am supposed to do what the Bible says. So here are the questions. Do you invite God's Word to be useful for you? Do you let it inform and shape your doctrine, what you believe to be true of God? Do you also invite it to inform your actions, what you're going to do about it? Here's some other questions underneath that. Are you teachable? Are you correctable? Are you trainable? Okay, four words. On God's word, here's the last one. We need the Bible because Scripture is whole life. It's inspired, it's useful, but also because it equips. It gears us up. It gets us ready for what God has for you, what he has for me next. Paul ended that section of Scripture with this, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I love another translation, quite literally says that the person of God, the man of God, may be complete equipped for every good work. If you were to study that text a little bit deeper, there's two forms of the same Greek word for equip that gets used there. One is an, an adjective, complete. One is a participle, equipped. He does this to make a point. Gear up. Get ready. Because you don't know yet what God is gearing you up for. Deuteronomy chapter 32 says this, Take heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. Do me a favor. Grab your Bible. Pull it out. Please do this, whether it's an electronic form or it's the Bible that you brought with you today or if it is this Bible right here, I'm on page 610 of this Bible, which happens to be Psalm 119. The ancient, even writers of Scripture, this is how holistic this idea of biblical authority is, they took this call to action very seriously. And when the writer of Psalm 119, when God, the Holy Spirit, whispered into his ears and God breathed these words out on the page, you'll notice it's meant to be whole life here. Literally from A to Z, it's the Hebrew letters of the alphabet, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet. And for each one of them, there's a section on how to live life. It's poetic, it's holistic, and it's this idea that you're going to be equipped. You're going to be ready to face what life is getting ready to throw at you. By the way, A to Z, our alphabet goes from A to Z. What goes from Z to A? It's a horse from Africa. It's called a zebra. That's so bad I can't even count that one as a dad joke. When Jesus began his ministry and he was tempted by Satan, he took this whole life view of Scripture. He'd been equipped, and it helped him with temptation. If you were to look at this in Luke chapter 4, Jesus has just been baptized. Now he's in the wilderness. He's been this fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, a miracle fast, and Satan comes to him and seeks to tempt him in this moment. Twice, he says, if you are the Son of God, he's tempting him with identity. 
but he's also tempting him with physical needs as well. Like the first temptation was he was hungry. He said, listen, hey, those stones over there, I know if you're the son of God, you could make those stones into bread. And Jesus replied with scripture. He said, it's written, man does not live on bread alone. Then Satan took him to a high place, in my opinion, I think this is Mount Hermon, and he's looking over the international highway, and Jesus would have known that this road leads to all over the empire, and Satan's saying, listen, you can have it all, I'll give it all to all of you. And Jesus, in this temptation, false worship, Satan is saying, I'm going to give you prestige and power and wealth if you bow down and worship me, and Jesus replied, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He's coming back. He's doing battle with Satan, with Scripture. And then he took him to a high place on the temple, and Satan said, listen, if you throw your... He gets wise. He's starting to use Scripture here to tempt Jesus. It's written that angels will come and catch you if you throw yourself down from here. And Jesus replied, do not put the Lord your God to the test. One of my favorite musicians years ago, Rich Mullins, He wrote a song about this. He called it quoting Deuteronomy to the devil. That's what he's doing. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy, and he's coming back with Scripture because he had been equipped even to reply to this temptation. Here's the question. The Scriptures were life to Moses. They were food to Jesus. They can't be anything less to us. They're the very breath of God, right? So here's the question. Do you invite God's Word to make you ready? Do you feed on God's word? By the way, what is he getting you ready for? Remember the text, the context of the passage we looked at? Paul encouraged Timothy, get ready. There was some context there. Preach the word, be ready in season and out, because there's going to be a time coming when people's ears are going to give in to what their itching ears want to hear, turn aside from myths. You do what God has called you to do. I just wonder. What's he feeding you for? What is he getting ready to use you for? I want to wrap this up. We're talking about biblical authority. Let's underline that word, authority. Is it? Is the Bible really an authority figure in your life? When you hear the word authority, what do you picture Do you picture a general leading his troops into battle? Do you picture maybe a father figure in your life? Do you picture the Supreme Court handing down a decision? Maybe you picture a local judge who says, yeah, you're going to pay that fine. You're going to pay that parking ticket. Authority. Here's what the word means, quite literally. Authority is the power or right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. Let me read that again. The power or right that you invite on yourself to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. By very definition, is the Bible in a position of authority in your life? Have you given it that space? Have you invited it to have that authority? Do do me a favor, grab your Bible. Maybe it's an electronic form right now, maybe it's this Bible. Maybe it's the Bible you brought with you. Just hold it in your hands, will you? There's a phrase out there, I hear it often. We're going to stand on Scripture. We stand on Scripture. Stand on the authority of Scripture. And I I understand what people mean by that. 
But can you imagine if you took the thing that I just invited you to hold on to and you put it on the ground and you stepped up and stood on it right now, what kind of a word picture is that? I would submit to you, we don't stand on Scripture. We don't use Scripture to be our bully pulpit to challenge and yell at other people. Uh-uh. Rather, take it like this. Please do this. And move the posture like this. Go ahead and do that right now. Take your Bible. Hold it up above you. We don't stand on Scripture. We live under the authority of Scripture. Look around right now and see what folks are doing. Can you imagine a community of faith that lived out like that? We don't stand on Scripture and shout at people from a distance. Rather, personally, we decide to live under its authority. Let's simply review our questions, shall we? Do you invite God's Word to feed you? inspire you, be useful to you? Are you teachable? Are you correctable? Are you trainable? Are you ready? Do you feed on it? And what is God getting you ready to do in you and through you by the authority of his scripture? Well, I promised you we would end here, so this is where we're going to end, James. The book of James, very clearly. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Rather, do what it says. Anybody who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like somebody who looks at his face in a mirror and then, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. That is absurd. Don't do that, he says. Don't just listen. Do what it says. Interestingly enough, there's a potential application in the very next verses. Let's look at that, shall we? James chapter 1, verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James. You could read about this in Acts chapter 6. There's this thing that's going on in the early church where there's two groups of widows and they're not being cared for correctly. And James is weighing in. And here he's writing with some commentary on that very thing. And he's saying, listen, just do what the Bible says. Take care of these ladies. Take care of these orphans in their distress. We have an opportunity that's in front of us right now. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the Bible as an authority speaks and informs our actions. On the Near East side of Indianapolis, there are some, in some ways, orphans. Some folks that need your resources. You've got 20 bucks in your pocket that you can use to empower them to learn to read, maybe to, with school supplies that are going to send them off to school here real well. Actually, I would invite Jake to come out. Jake, would you explain to us the action steps that we've got in front of us right now? <laughs> 